morning prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Okay. Um, my sobriety date is May 10th of 1991. My home group is Club Friday, and uh, I have a sponsor. And for the first time in my life, I started doing what I was told. And when I started doing that, I didn't find it necessary to pick up drugs or alcohol since that time. And what I'm going to give you in the beginning is, is my story. And everything else after I put down the drink is things that I've learned here. And I can't take credit for any of that. I give all the credit to you people in this program. So fasten your seatbelts and hold on. Um, I got bigger out in Twinsburg. Um, I say I got bigger because I never grew up till I got here. Um, I'm one of six children, and I was raised in the turbulence of my father's disease, who was raised in the turbulence of his father's disease, and all the way back in my family, as far as I know, uh, alcoholism has been a problem. Um, that's not why I'm alcoholic. For those of you who are new and don't really understand it, there's huge controversy in this program, whether it's it's hereditary or not, and it really doesn't matter. Um, there are people who have alcoholism in their family here and there. There's people who are in this program that can't find it anywhere. So um, you do with that what you want. That's not really important to me. Today, what's important to me is that I know that I'm an alcoholic. And for me to remain in recovery, I have to do exactly what you people have told me to do. And that's what I try to do. Um, I got out of high school in uh, 1975, and uh, I joined a band and uh, started in the entertainment business for a while. And uh, that's where I started polishing. <clears throat> excuse me. That's where I started polishing my, my drinking and, and my abuse. And um, at this time, I started hanging around in a, in a bar down in Kent, the college town. Um, there was a nice little place called Filthy McNasty's. And uh, it's not as bad as it sounds. It was a really nice place. And um, I've been pretty much this size for, for most of my life. And, and as soon as I got down there, they, uh, they let me be part of the bounce team. And um, things were things were good. I'm not one of them people who could stand up here and tell you that I was alcoholic the first time I drank. Uh, I had a lot of fun out there. Um, <laughs> but we'll go into that after after intermission. So uh, I met my first wife down in uh, Kent in a bar. And she was a pretty little thing, and she partied just like I did, and I thought, what better reason? And and we hooked up, and uh, we moved in together after a couple of months, and a couple of months after that, we were married. Um, my father got me a job down at Republic Steel, and I started working swing turn and uh, started learning how to drink around the clock. So I'm juggling uh, a new relationship, uh 
the band, Republic Steel, and working down at the bar. And I was having a ball. Um, getting pretty much to the point where I was drinking or using something every day. Um, it got a little tiring, and, and the wife says, you know, it's time we grow up and start a family. And about four years into our marriage, um, I thought that was a great idea, and she grew up, and my son Troy was born. Um, for those of you who don't have children, um, believe me, they're a gift from God. For those of you who do have children, remind yourself they are a gift from God. <laughs> um, so, you know, he, he's born, and I'm in the hospital, and I'm beating my chest, and I'm passing out cigars, and I'm jumping up and down and hooting and hollering in the hallways, and, and I'm... I'm just happy as I get out and I go after visitation, I go to the bar and I proclaim that I'm a new dad and people started buying me drinks. I thought that was a real good thing. So the next day I went to a different bar and proclaimed that I was a new dad and people started buying me drinks. And the next day I went to another bar and so on and so on and I had 12 kids that month. <laughs> Things were pretty good. Um, Things weren't all that good. <laughs> but, of course, I, I didn't see it. Um, anyway, time rolls on and the band fell apart because we uh, we all were getting pretty, pretty uh, liquored up while we were trying to do our jobs. And it's pretty tough to entertain a room full of people when you got six drunks on the stage all doing something different. And uh, the job at Republic Steel started getting in, my, in the way of my drinking and my partying down in Kent. And uh, and I was a young man at the time. I was 20 years old, and, and uh, I was making good money for a 20-year-old at the time. And uh, I walked in there and told them, you know, I just really couldn't do this anymore. And uh, I walked away from that job, and um, it, it, it started getting uh, pretty regular. <clears throat> This is about the time I went into my Star Trek drinking. And uh, for those of you who don't understand that, on the Enterprise, which is the ship on Star Trek, they have a, a gadget called the Transporter. And uh, one minute you're one place and the next minute you're someplace totally different. And that's about how my drinking took off. Uh, I started blacking out pretty good, pretty regularly. And one minute I'd be someplace and the next minute I'd be someplace totally different and had no idea how I got there. And... Um, Time was I was losing time, and um, I, it, there were no consequences yet. And then the next day, um, I got off work and, and went to the bar with my buddy, and it was in the morning. And the next thing I know, it's 9:30 at night, and I'm in the Portage County Jail, and I have a DWI, assault and battery charge against me, and I don't even remember leaving the bar. Well, what had happened was. Um, started drinking the little shooters, and um, when I left the bar, there was a nice big sweeping curve on, on 44 leaving out of Ravenna, and I didn't make the turn, and I barrel rolled the car into the guy's front yard, and um, um, that weekend cost me a lot of money. It was the first time that consequences actually took hold, and... Um, I just blamed it on my bad luck. I really didn't put two and two together. 
the wife got a little tired of uh, the antics, and she decided that she was leaving, and um, she took my son and left. And uh, for those of you who've never been divorced, let me explain the pleasures of divorce court to you. <laughs> you have child support, and you have uh, total strangers telling you when you're allowed to see your own children. And um, I couldn't understand how, how she could do this to, to me. You know, it was all about me. It was always all about me. So um, I'm seeing my son and paying child support, and I take him home one day after visitation, and the ex-wife comes out to the car and asks me when I bought a pool table. I didn't understand the question, and I asked her, what are you talking about? She said, Troy says you guys are playing pool and pinball, and, and, and I don't understand when did you get a pool table. And, uh, see, that's, that's the quality time I was spending with my son. I was taking him to the bar with me, and I was putting him up on the stool next to me, and I was feeding him chips and pretzels and quarters for the jukebox and a pinball, and, and that was quality time. Well, she decided that that was going to be about enough of that, and she took him and she moved out of state. And um, for a while there, uh, he was flying back and forth, and then one day I called down, and uh, the phone was disconnected. And I had no idea where they, where they were, where they were at. Uh, anyone in their right frame of mind probably would have put some money together and hired someone to go find them, but uh, that got in the way of my drinking. So what I did was I just tailspinned into the bottle. Around this time, I met another young lady in a bar. And she was a pretty little thing. She partied just like I did, so what better reason? And we moved in together, and we started playing house. And she had a daughter the same age as my son. And, um, you know, things things were things. This is how it was. Um, I continued doing what I was doing. Um, about three or four years go down the road, and, and we got married, and she decided we should grow up and have a family of our own, and I thought that was a great idea. And she grew up, and my daughter Shauna was born. Same scenario. I don't have to repeat it. I had 12 daughters that month, and <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it just got pretty hectic. I mean, there were a lot of red cars. Uh, I counted them one time. It's over like 30. <laughs> A lot of jail, um, a lot of lawyers' fees, a lot of court costs, and um, it started catching up with me. And um, one day, my last jump consists of something I'm not real proud of, but it's part of my story, and you got to hear it, and i got to say it. One day after work, I go across the street uh, with the guys from work, because that's what you do. That's the excuse. Well, that's the, that was the reason at the time. And... Um, Called the wife to explain I was stopping at the bar, and it was, you know, because I'm polite like that. And uh, she said, it's Wednesday, and it's the third night this week. You stopped. Why don't you just come home? And that was enough for me to slam the phone down and start drinking shooters. And next thing I know, it's 930 at night, and I'm in, I was transported into to the bar right around the corner from my house, which was Pat's down over there on, the, on Turney. And... Um, I'm still in my work clothes, and, and I'm thinking she's going to be pretty mad, so I go out to m my car to go home, and all my clothes are in my car. And I thought, man, she's really mad. She don't even want me to come home. Well, that wasn't the case. The case was I had already been there, and alcohol turned me into the same monster it turned my father into. And I went home, and I slapped the hell out of the only person left on the planet who cared anything about me, and I don't even remember being there. 
But when I got back to the house, she not so politely told me to leave or she was going to call the police. And, uh, you know, I don't like jail that well, so uh, I did what any good drunk would do. I went back to the bar to tell the guys how my wife doesn't understand me. And I hooked up with a couple of guys who were doing some other things besides drinking and three days of not sleeping and not going to work and not showering or not eating. Found myself on the kitchen floor of this house and I don't even know where I was and I don't even know who I was with. And um, if you ever need to get out of a situation and you don't know how to do it, just start crying. They ask you to leave immediately. So, big bad Dan, 6'3", about 250 pounds sobbing, crying, I'm getting ready to lose my second wife and my second family and all this stuff. That was the hard part, the stuff. Then I built back up from my first devastation. So after they asked me to leave, I didn't know where else to go, so I called home and I begged my wife's forgiveness and she said, heard it, and I promised it would be different, and she said, no, it won't. And she said uh, I was pretty sick, and she didn't want to see me till I was sober for a year. I didn't know at the time where it came from, but I know now that it was it was God looking out for me. I found myself down at Rosary Hall, which is a treatment center that's down at St. Charity, St. Vincent Charity Hospital. And um, I'm a firm believer of you get what you need when you come here. And uh, I'm in this room with this the old lady and she's asking me all these questions and I had I was incapable of telling the truth by this time and I was telling her about a third of what I was really up to and she told me I was really sick and I should stay with them for a couple of weeks so uh, she asked me if I had a job and I said well, three days ago I did I don't know let me call them and um, I called work and, and <laughs> they were happy to hear from me and um, I went into treatment and this is where, this is where my discovery and the beginning of my recovery starts. Treatment centers, and by no means am I promoting treatment centers, but once again, I'm a firm believer of you get what you need when you come here. And that's exactly what I needed to do. Um, treatment centers are a discovery. And they taught me an awful lot about the disease concept, um, the two-phase mind and body. And I got what I needed to start doing what I needed to do. And then when I got out of there, you people were here to help me along the way. But anyway, I'm in treatment, and and you people show up, and you 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 shared your stories, and you uh, did big book studies, and you just came down and bought cigarettes, and and sat around and drank coffee, and and um, they're telling me in there that I got to find a sponsor. And this guy comes in, and he comes up with this huge smile on his face, and he shakes my hand, and he says, How you doing? I'm Dan. And I said, Hey, that's pretty good. I'm Dan, too. And I'm thinking, you know, they're telling me I need a sponsor, and there's no way nobody that's not high could be this happy. So I'm going to ask him to be my sponsor, and he's going to show me how to do it and get away with it. <laughs> so I asked him to be my sponsor, and he said, I'd be more than happy to help you, Dan, but there's two things you have to do. And I said, What's that? He says, you have to make this big book study out in Euclid, your home group, so I could see you once a week and we could work on the steps that you need to put into your life so you could have a complete psychic change so you could be on your way to recovery. And right out of my mouth came, I live in Garfield, Euclid's too far away from my house. <laughs> Didn't drop a step. He turned back at me and he said, you've come out of blackouts further away from home than that. 
And I said, all right, you got me on that one. I said, all right, what else do I need to do? He says, you need to change everything about you except your name. I said, that sounds pretty hard. And he looked dead at me and he says, it's not as hard as you're going to make it. <laughs> so after about two weeks of being in Rosary Hall, it was time for me to go, and let me tell you, I didn't want to leave because I felt safe there. For the first time in my life, I felt safe because I couldn't go down the hall and get a drink or whatever else I was doing at the time. <clears throat> my wife let me come home. She said it was like I had a brain transplant. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It, it was good for me. So I... I started going to meetings. They told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I said, that's every day. They said, you drank every day. And everything you guys told me that there was no arguing with you. I, and I tried. Let me tell you, I tried to argue with you. So I'm going to meetings, and uh, I'm going on this side of town because I was living, as a matter of fact, right across the street down here. <clears throat> and um, on Wednesday, I'd shoot all the way out to Euclid to this big book study and, and what they would do is they would listen to the Joe and Charlie Big Book study tapes for about 45 minutes, and then after the meeting, they'd break down into, excuse me, smaller groups. And people, sponsors were helping their, their sponsees, and the books were open, and people were, were doing the work that's needed to be done here. And uh, after that meeting, they had a home group meeting, and I, and I joined the home group, and the coffee guy looked at me, and he said, guess what, it's your turn to make coffee. I'm tired of doing it. Now, I didn't know nothing about making coffee, but uh, that's all I had to do was say that, and they showed me how to do that, too. Now, let me explain something to you about the coffee guy. If you've never made coffee, if you're new, or if you're old and you've never made coffee, this is something that you really ought to do. It's a good experience. The coffee guy's a lot like a bartender. If someone is in the program and they're working the program like they're supposed to and they're having a bad day, they go to a meeting a little early to talk to somebody. And the only guy there early is the coffee guy. And let me tell you, you guys got some serious problems. Made mine look like nothing. So I started making coffee, and they got me right into the steps and right into the big book. And I... I'd go over there and, and I'd do the, the study work that I needed to do and I'd come back over here to this side of town and believe me, I'm not bad-mouthing this side of town, that side of town. I'm just telling you how it was. I was walking around with this huge smile on my face already and, um, and, and I'm gung-ho and they're telling me, slow down, you didn't get sick overnight, you're not going to get better overnight. And this confused me, so I took it back to my sponsor and I said, they're telling me to slow down. He didn't do it too often because he wasn't a large man, but he did poke up at me and poke me in the chest, and he said, show me in the book where it says slow down. Couldn't argue with him. Could never argue with him. So I kept doing what I was supposed to do, and uh, I got the nickname of the 90-day wonder for a while. Um, not too many people thought I was going to stick around, so I, I think I, I did it just to spite them. <laughs> Told you. And uh, so I walked around with my big super AA on my chest and my cape, my cape and my boots and I was going to save the world and I was feeling good and I was going over there doing step work and things I needed to do and I was going to lead meetings and I was getting active and I was doing what I was supposed to do. For the first time in my life I did what you people told me to do. The same thing that my parents and, and my teachers and, and my spiritual leaders and everyone in my life tried 
to tell me to do, and I didn't follow any direction until I got here. So I'm at this meeting one night, and uh, we're going over some stuff, and my sponsor looks at me, and he says, well, Dan, I believe you're ready to take your third step. And I said, ah, that's great. Now, where this meeting was at was out at Night and Day Club, and it's probably eight times the size of this room, and, and the place was packed. And this man gets up out of his chair, and he kneels down on his, on his knees on the floor and goes like this. And I looked around, and I said, what, now? He said, you said you were willing to do anything to stay sober. So I got down on my knees with these guys, and I held hands, and I said the, the third step prayer, and I believe God heard me because I got an overwhelming feeling of, of safety, and uh, I was in a good spot. Got up off my knees and put me directly into work into the fourth step because there's no slowing down, he told me. He said, you don't wait to feel better to do the steps. The steps is the medicine. You do the medicine and you feel better. So I did exactly what they told me to do. Um, after about three months, my sponsor decided it was time for me to go down to Rosary Hall and start working with new people, and he told me that's what I was going to do, and I told him I, I didn't think that I was ready to do that because what did I have to share with these people? I'm only sober for three months. And he told me that I had three months longer than they did, and it was my responsibility to go down there and talk to them. And once again, I did exactly what I was told, and I started a big book study down at Rosary Hall that I continued to do every Sunday for three years. Anyway, going to meetings every night, I come home, and my wife looks at me, and she says, you know, you might as well still be drinking. You're never home. <laughs> I took this to my sponsor, and I said, there's no pleasing her. I can't get it. I don't know what to do. She's all upset because I'm never home. I'm going to meetings. <clears throat> and he told me, Dan, you have to make her understand that this has to be the most important thing in your life right now. If you don't do exactly what you're supposed to do, you're not going to get exactly what you're supposed to get, and you're going to go back to drinking and go back to being who you used to be, and she's going to leave you anyway. So I took this back to my wife and I said, my sponsor says that this has to be the most important thing in my life right now. She understood and, and she got over it and she started meeting me at the door with a big kiss and a hug every night when I got home and she told me a couple years down the road that it was like a breathalyzer. She still didn't trust me, but it was okay. And I started getting better. I started getting better and... uh all of a sudden, I started going to work every day, and all of a sudden, I started getting stuff. A doesn't promise you any stuff, but if you set the drink down and you go to work every day, you're able to buy stuff, and it's amazing. I'm sober for a year, and my son calls me out of the blue. It was a gift from God. He gave him to me once. He gave him back to me. He was 14 years old. He was living in West Virginia, and um, he called me up out of the blue, and uh, we got a relationship back going together, and, and I was able to make amends to his mother, and um, I was able to, uh, uh, let me see if I could put this the right way. You people taught me forgiveness and, and not to hold, hold resentments and stuff like that, so... Um, 
I agreed not to put her in jail, and she agreed not to keep me responsible for any of the back child support. So it worked out kind of good. And um, my son came to see me the summer that he got out of eighth grade, and when he got here, he decided he wanted to stay here. So I went right and got a lawyer and, and made that happen. And um, it, it was good, you know. And it's only because of this program, and I got sober. But he was used to being down south, and that's where he was raised. And uh, he was in West Virginia and Georgia. And um, he'd come home, and he'd want to go hunting. And they they found on discharging firearms and gasoline lights. <laughs> and uh, he really didn't fit in up here because they, you know he had that real West Virginia twang in his voice, and like Oki got and. Uh, <laughs> And they called him West Virginia, and, and he went through his, his freshman year here, and then uh, hey, he said, Dad, i got to go. I just don't fit here. So he went back to live with his mom. Um, and, and I was good with that. I stayed sober. You know, I brought this to you people, and you told me, well, you know, it's that's life. You have to deal with it. Um I'm five years sober now, and things are great. I'm doing good at work. I got into a whole nother trade when I sobered up. Um, life is good. I I, I bought a, a century home over on Boning off the off the Turney Road down here, and things are great. And I'm going to meetings still. After five years, I was still going to three, four meetings a week. And um, my wife comes to me and she says. I need my space. I told her, go upstairs, it's a big house. And she said, no, you know what I mean. And uh, I brought this to you people, and I said, uh, there's no pleasing her. I don't know what to do. And you explained to me that a lot of people come into this program, and a lot of people get divorced after they come into this program. And I didn't understand that. And you, you explained it further by telling me that the people that are alcoholic in the household wreak havoc on everybody in the house, and the household gets sick because this is a family disease. It's things I already knew. I just didn't know the names of them because I had come from that. It was in my father's house, and it's a family disease. And everything we touch and everyone who gets in our path, we hurt, especially the ones who love us the most. So... Um, mm, I start going through a divorce in sobriety, and uh, it was pretty tough because I was there for this one. I was conscious for this one. It was a lot harder than the first one, believe me. And there goes all my stuff again. <laughs> so around this time, my son calls me from West Virginia, and he says, Dad, I'm not getting along with my with mom's husband. And Graham lives over in the next city, but it's out of the school district. And if, if I get a job, will you help me get a car so I could go to school with all my buddies? And I was like, Troy, no problem. Now, you know, he's his daddy's boy. I thought I had all kinds of time. A week later, he calls me up, dude, I got a job. How about that car? So um, I get him a car, and um, around this time, uh, I met another young lady, and um, she parties just like I do. She drinks coffee. 
She's not in the program, though. It, 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 here to find out when she was 18, 19 years old. She got drunk a couple times, got sick, set it down, never touched it again. Go figure. I don't get it. But anyway, um, she's a pretty little thing, and, and we bought a house in Rocky River together in, in June, and the next month we got married in the backyard. But anyway, back to my son. I, I got this car, and uh, she helped me take it down to him. <clears throat> I bought him a Camaro. And when I got there, I did the dad thing, you know. I said, Troy, this car ever leaves the driveway going to school and don't get there, or if you ever drink and drive in this car, I'm going to come down here with a baseball bat and start on the car. Now, I drank and drove for years. Terribly. One eye closed, hanging out the window with the radio full blast so I could see. And to my knowledge, I don't believe I ever hurt anyone. I wrecked a lot of stuff, though. Um, my son was at it for two weeks. I was laying in bed. It was 5.30 in the morning. And I get a call from West Virginia. It's an emergency room, and it's an emergency room doctor. And he says, Mr. Drusky, your son was involved in a terrible accident. And he's burned third degree over 30% of his body, and we're life-flattening to the West Penn Hospital. And I was devastated, and I jumped in my truck at 5.30 in the morning, and I got on the, on the Ohio Turnpike, and I'm flying down the road, and I'm screaming at God because I don't understand how this could happen. How is this happening? And I brought this to you people after, afterwards, and, and a friend, of, a very good friend of mine told me, you know what, Dan, I never got drunk when my mom was drinking. And Troy never got drunk while I was drinking. Troy got drunk while Troy was drinking. And what had happened was him and a couple of buddies got all hopped up, and uh, they were out in his new car, and, and they were doing donuts and hole shots, and and uh, they they hit a gas meter, and the, and the car caught fire, and it exploded, and, and the other boy in the front sustained a couple of broken bones and cuts, and Troy got burned real bad, and the boy in the back died. They didn't tell me that until I got to the hospital. I beat the life flight there. It's amazing I'm not in jail. <laughs> so when Troy gets there, he's hooked up to all these wires and, and, and bells and whistles, and, and he's unconscious. He's in a coma, and he was in a coma for three days. And I stayed next to his bed, and me and God talked for a long time. And I was getting pretty squirrely, and... and and you people came to what you came to West Penn Hospital and you held me up. He comes out of a coma and he still can't talk because he's got all this stuff in his mouth. And and I give him a paper and pencil, and uh, his first question was, "What happened?" And I said, "Troy, you were involved in a really bad accident." And like a good little drunk, his next question was, "Am I in trouble?" <laughs> After a whole bunch of surgeries, reconstructive surgeries and skin grafts and that nature, he was released out of the hospital. And I talked to his mother, and, and we thought it would be a good idea that he goes back to his mother's house to recover, and this was in October. Now, in December, I called to make arrangements to see him and uh, for Christmas, and she said, when you come and get him, you keep him because he's drinking again. And... I went down and I picked him up and I brought him back 
and he was uh, in the middle of his senior year. And I explained to him, Troy, you can't be drinking and be around me. I can't have it. You can't be coming home drunk and being in my house. I can't have it. And he understood. And he started coming around to these rooms, and a couple of you people might have met him. He got through high school. He graduated from Garfield, and the day after graduation, he had that same look in his face, and he said, Dad, i got to go. And I packed him up, and I took him back down to West Virginia and got off 79. And uh, there was a big old mutter truck at the gas station, big old huge tires like they run down there in West Virginia. It was one of his buddies, and they threw all the stuff in the back of his truck. And it was like releasing a, an animal back into the wild. He jumped in the back of the truck, and off he went whistling and hollering. And, I love you, Dad. I'll talk to you soon. Well, life goes on. That's what you people tell me. So, uh, let me tell you a little bit about anniversaries. <clears throat> anniversaries are important to us in this program. My first year anniversary, there was cake and balloons and a party. And my second anniversary, there was a card. And the third anniversary, nobody even acknowledged it, and I was crushed. I was like, Where, where's my parade? I took this to my sponsor, and he said, you know what, Dan, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You know what? That That's it. <laughs> Anniversaries are only important to us. And if you run with a click, a click of people in here who you call your friends and your support group, remember each other's anniversary because it's important. Okay? On my 11th year anniversary, I got up and I went to work. And... Tell you the truth, I forgot it was really my anniversary because it wasn't about me anymore. And I'm at work for about an hour, and I get a phone call, and it's my my first ex-wife, Troy's mom, and uh, Troy took a gun and shot himself because he couldn't deal with the guilt and the shame of that boy's death, and he had untreated alcoholism. people came to West Virginia and you helped me bury my boy. And you told me that it wasn't a reason to drink and I believe you. So, uh, that's my story. Let me wrap it up with a few little stories that I heard in these rooms that are very important to me. Well, one actually I didn't hear in this room. It's, we lost a lot of people that year, and at one of the funerals, I don't remember which one it was, but we were standing graveside, and the, and the priest or the preacher or whoever it was gave me something that I remember to this day. He said, I need you all to look around here, and I need you to tell me what it is you believe each and every one of us had in common. I had no clue what he was talking about because we were men and women and we were black and we were white and we were young and we were old and what could we all have in common? And he said, every single one of us have one thing in common. When God puts us on this planet, there's a date forged. And when we leave this planet, there's another date and it's etched in stone. 
And in between those two days is a little dash. And that's your life. And that's what we all have in common is our dash. And I'd like to think that the rest of this time on this planet is, is my time to polish my dash. Because when I go to stand in front of my God, I want to be proud of that dash. And I'd like to thank each and every one of you for being part of it. I'll wrap up with this one, and of course it's something that it's not mine. I, I heard it in these rooms. And it's about turning your life over to the care of God. And there's a little boy, and he's playing outside, and his dad's in the den doing his bill work for the month. And the little boy runs in the house, and he says, Dad, will you come out and play with me? There's nobody to play with. And the old man looks at him, and he says, You know, I really got to take care of this. I'll be out in a little bit. And the little boy goes back outside, and about ten minutes later, he comes back in the house. He says, Dad, come on out and play. The sun's shining. The birds are singing. There's nobody to play with. And his dad said, Look, I told you, I really got to take care of this. I'll be out in a little bit. So the boy goes back outside, and five minutes later, he comes back in, he's in tears. He says, Dad, come on, come throw the ball with me. There's nobody to play with. So the old man reaches up on the shelf, and he pulls the book down, and he flips through the book, and he finds a page with the picture of the world on it. And he rips the page out of the book, and he tears it up into little pieces like a puzzle. And he hands it to his son, and he says, You go outside and put the puzzle of the world together, and when you're done, I'll come out and play with you. And the kid said, all right. And he turns and he walks out. And his dad thought he had all kinds of time. A few minutes later, he comes back in. He says, Dad, I did it. Come on. And his dad was amazed. He said, how did you do that? He said, I turned it over, and there was a picture of a man. And when I put the man together, the world fell into place. Please join me in the Lord's Prayer.